Well, good morning, everybody. Y'all doing well? I hope so. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me to James chapter 5. We're going to spend our time focusing on one particular verse today, and then next week we'll come back and we'll um, close out the series. I I had... um, I think I had a, a braver look on this uh, this week than than what is really happening. So we're gonna we're gonna spend all day just on this one verse, this one idea, and this one uh, truth that I think as Christians uh, we need to understand deeply. And that truth, just kind of up front, is the truth that we need to be a people of our word. Okay, we need to be a people of our word, and this goes far beyond just our confessions of faith and those kinds of things. This this goes into every aspect of our life. So, James chapter five, starting at verse one, these are the words of God: "Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire." Uh, Sounds positive, right? Uh, It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasures. Verse 4, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your field and which which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, which is just the Lord of heaven's hosts, heaven's armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. And last week we talked about the idea that the scripture does not always address just God's people. That would be the Jews or the Christian It also uh, includes messages, as you'll see in Ezekiel, as you'll see in Jeremiah uh, and Isaiah, you'll see messages to the outside world, calling them to a correction. And so I made the case last week that verses 1 through 6 are actually a message to rich oppressors, okay? But uh, James takes a turn here, and then he begins to address his people or the people of God. And here's what he says, therefore, be patient, who? Brethren, notice he didn't say that in the first six verses, right? Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthening your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. And then verse nine, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Okay, so who was judged in verses one through six? the rich oppressors, but he's warning them that they don't need to be judged, uh, so they need to just trust in him. And it says, behold, the judge is standing right at the door. I made the case again last week that this is not a judgment that we think of. This is not a fearful judgment. The judge is at the door, and if you trust in the judge, justice will be served, and it's a good thing. Anybody who has been the victim uh, of anybody who oppresses them, anybody who has hurt them, they desire justice. We desire justice if we are in the right. And so he says, behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, 
Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So as for you, you should be patient. He goes on and says, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And then the focus of our time today, verse 12, says this. But above all, say that with me, but above all, okay, that's a curious line, and we're going to explore this uh, in just a second. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Okay, so what I've shared with you uh, in the past, and I highlighted this last week, is that my responsibility as a pastor, uh, God has equipped the church with certain giftings for certain purposes, um, but it is not to have a high place, it is not to pat oneself on the back, it's not to be proud, it's instead to do the job, okay? And the job of a pastor is not to stand up here and tell you what to think, The job of a pastor is actually to stand up here and teach you how to think, right? It's to teach you how to arrive at truths or ideas within the scripture. And it's so important of a job to teach you how to think uh, that if it is not done correctly, the risk that we face in the church, the challenge we face in the church, is that the body itself is not built up. Okay, we I have a responsibility. Every uh, elder and deacon that is in this church, every person who stands here in position of pastor teacher has a responsibility to speak to you in a way to help grow you and shape you. That hasn't been my aim all of my time in ministry, but it is definitely uh, what I understand that aim to be now. And I'm going to do it with every ounce of energy that's in me. And if you know me, That's a lot, okay? And so I I may look like I'm scowling all the time because I don't know, my face is stuck this way, but but there's plenty of energy, plenty of passion to keep going. So here's here's what I want you to see. I'm going to start by jumping to Ephesians 4, and I'm going to show you the importance of why you and I need to have this relationship where your responsibility is to learn how to think because you are vital and you are important inside of the body of Christ. So here's what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. He says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And there's all kinds of strange debates on um, whether or not we have a five-fold ministry or a full fo- four-fold ministry, being that pastors and teachers are often the same thing. It really is irrelevant. The idea is God has given these particular gifts to the church for a purpose. But please understand what I'm about to say. He did not give these gifts to the church to the exclusion of you. He did not give these gifts to the church to be lauded or praised, but maybe, maybe there's honor according to Hebrews. Maybe there's honor and, and reverence that goes per someone who leads, but it is not worship, okay? And so what's really important is that there's a responsibility, but the responsibility of this person is to train you so that you can be helped to the body as well. So he gave some as pastors and teachers for, say it with me, church, The equipping of the saints for the work of service. What in the world is that? So pastors are actually just given to the church so they can get everybody ready so that they can go give out groceries at Mercy Works. 
Yes, but not only, okay? <laughs> yes, but not only. And what we're going to see is Paul expands on that a bit more. And you're going to see the importance of learning how to think, not what to think, okay? Because this is actually the work of service that we're called to. So, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body in Christ. So that's the end game, building up into the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith. Are we unified as a church, church? In our church, maybe. Are we unified across the board? We are absolutely not. Do we still need pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, and evangelists? <laughs> you better bet your rear end. Okay, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Even in the day where Paul was an apostle to the church, right? Even in his time, he goes to certain groups of people and he says, gosh, you guys ought to be a little bit smarter by now. <laughs> right? You guys ought to have grown in your understanding of the knowledge of Christ, but you don't, so you need somebody to teach you again. This is a recurring reality inside of the church, but there is coming a day when we will all reach this. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, and the reason why it's a man is because we're the body of Christ, okay? So let's just walk through this. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What level of maturity and unity are we supposed to reach? The fullness of King Jesus. This is a little bit more than some church's doctrinal statement or some denomination's creed or ideas, okay? This is this is so transcendent. This is so much more. It actually is the full stature of the king we say we serve. So verse 14 goes on, and it says, as a result. So here's the objective. Here's what's going to happen when all of this stuff happens. We are no longer to be children, so we should have childlike faith. We just shouldn't have childish faith. Amen? Childlike faith simply says, Dad, I trust you. Childish faith says, I want to stay in my ignorance for as long as I can. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay? So as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. This is what it means to grow people in the work of service for the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. Their responsibility is to teach you how to think so that what can happen? You are not blown here and there. You are not going, what in the world? I think that sounds like a good idea. Let's just go that way. And the church is struggling right now because there is a lot of nonsense that continues to get promoted from pulpits and from conferences and from books. And the church goes, sounds warm and fuzzy to me. I think I should do that. And the answer is no, right? The answer is no. But sadly, the church doesn't have uh, leaders anymore. The church doesn't have dads anymore. The church doesn't have people that actually can look you in the eye and say, you're wrong. Ooh, how many of you know, show of hands, how many of you know you've been wrong in your life? How many of you know you've been wrong today? 
Kim Duffy, raise your daggone hand. Anyway, I love you. I love you. As a result, I, she makes me happy. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. Make no mistake, people. People are trying to manipulate and, and spin things, okay? Okay, so the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, by speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Okay, verse 16, last piece of Ephesians. Here's what it says. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together, who is, who is holding us all together? Well, Jesus, yes, he is the head, but see, the idea is coming from him. It comes through these other gifts that he has given, and it is held together by what, say it with me, church, every joint supplies. I need you. Do you know that? I need you. Here's the sticker. You need me. <laughs> it's funny. I just love saying it. It makes me happy. Anyway, okay, so no grumbling back there in the back row. I don't even want to hear it, okay? Every joint is supplying something. Why doesn't Jesus just go, because I give it all? Well, he does give it all, but he is giving it through us. Why is it that we shouldn't just tell somebody, keep warm and well fed? Because God isn't fixing everything through well wishes and prayer. He is fixing it through people who walk it out. Amen? Right? So, he says, we are held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. I love that. Causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. See, the importance of teaching you how to think or training you in how to think is so that we actually realize we need each other. We actually will grow to full unity and full maturity and, believe it or not, to the full stature of King Jesus when we really do learn what it means to love one another. But as long as we continue to persist in this foolish notion that uh, somebody is the Pope of something, somebody is the Grand Poobah of something, and they have to lead and they're only the, you know, the special one to disseminate the information, as long as we keep in that plan, here's what's going to happen. We're just going to keep following down paths of, of ideology or opinion, amen? Which is no good, quite honestly. It's no good. It's no good even if it's me, okay? And I... I'm the pastor, right? What is that? I am just one guy trying to figure out who Jesus is, who, who believes that God has given him a certain gift. But what the goal is, is to see all y'all working for him. All y'all doing the things that he's called us to do. Because when we're doing it, we're going to reach unity. We're going to reach maturity. We're going to grow up in absolute love. And we will see the world changed. So... That said, the need for you to understand how to think and not just what to think has led to this idea uh, that I want to get stuck in your head. And that idea is this. When it comes to biblical interpretation, all things are possible, not all things are probable. Okay? When it comes to biblical interpretation, all things are possible, not all things are probable. It is possible 
that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is possible that the Bible refers to all kinds of people. It is not probable. It is not probable because the rest of the word of God says God wants that none should perish but that all come to everlasting life. There are possible interpretations to just about everything. But there are not probable under, uh, interpretations to everything. So this morning, I want to talk to you about this concept in James 5.12, where James again says this really interesting line. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. It is possible that this, interpret, that this line is completely separate from its context. It's possible that James has just given us a bunch of wisdom literature and he's just throwing things out to us. And what he wants us to understand is that God hates oaths. And so don't sign a credit card receipt. <laughs> don't file a contract for your house or your mortgage. As a matter of fact, all y'all that are married, you probably screwed up because you made an oath in your marriage vows. It's possible that God would say something like this. It's possible that when we look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 34 through 30, uh, 37, that we can get this kind of idea. Look what Jesus says. I mean, this gets really heavy, right? But I say to you, make no oath at all. That seems locked down, doesn't it? <laughs> don't, don't do anything, right? Make no oath at all, either by heaven... And this is where we start to understand the meaning of it. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And then verses 36 and 37. Again, these are Jesus' words. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and then listen to what Jesus seems to indicate about oaths. Anything beyond this is of evil. <laughs> oh, crap. Okay, so uh, I just recently got my real estate license. I can't get anybody to sign any document from now on out because I'm calling them to evil, right? This is not what Jesus is saying. Is that probable? Sure. Or is that possible? Sure. Is it probable? No. Not when you look at the rest of what God's word actually says. So, what do we do with this idea? Here's what you need to do when you're studying God's word. When you come across something like this, whether it's James or Jesus or anybody in between, no matter who it is, you need to say, do they mean what I think they mean? Do they mean what I think they mean? We have a responsibility as Christians to get deep within the context of the people who wrote the original text because without that context, we're actually going to miss it. We're going to miss a great deal of stuff. Trust me, trust me, trust me. How many of you know that the King James uh, says that God causes evil? Well, if you didn't, you now do. God causes evil. You know what's really important about context? In King James English, evil meant calamity, not moral evil. 
in our day, that's all evil ever means, okay? Moral evil. When you put yourself in their context, here's what you learn. God brings about, God causes calamity on those who disobey him. Did you know that? He does. It's quite amazing. If you go against God, he will bring about a result of those actions. God causes calamity, evil, okay? But God is not the cause of moral evil or the the originator of that. And if, again, you don't know the context, if you don't know what an original word meant in a certain time, you will be confused, You will then lose faith. You'll have a ton of doubts in God that are actually misplaced ideas. So the same thing happens here when we say that God doesn't want us to have any oaths. There are very strict people groups that have taken this as seriously as I joked about before. They say you should never have a credit card because in signing your name, you are not saying yes. You are putting your name down. And God says, just say yes, yes, or no, no. How many of you know that yes, yes, and no, no is still just a very short version of an oath? (laughs) It's just a shrunk down version. So Jesus clearly can't mean these ideas. So how do we substantiate the claim that all Jesus is actually saying here is that his people should be a people of their word? Let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. How can we substantiate that claim? Well, we'll do it a couple of ways. The first one, verse 12 begins with the idea of but above all. That's that unique phrase that I told you about, right? So we're going to make an appeal uh, to this claim from context, right? But above all. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any other, uh, uh, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So that you may not fall under judgment. Now, what have we covered up to this point? Verses 1 through 6, this is all written within context. James doesn't separate himself from the idea. In verses 1 through 6, James has called out rich oppressors, Right? He said, these people are going to face the wrath of God. They're going to face judgment. He doesn't say he hates rich people. He just doesn't like oppressors, okay? So the rich oppressors are going to face the judgment. Verses 7 through 11 then tell us that as Christians, we are supposed to do something in light of that oppression. This is where the Christian life doesn't sound so fun, okay? Here's what you're supposed to do in light of oppression. Be patient. Everybody signing up still? Right? Right? It doesn't say in the midst of oppression, run the other way. It doesn't say in the midst of oppression, file a complaint with your senator. It doesn't say in the midst of oppression, exercise your freedom of speech and yell and scream at everybody on Facebook. (laughs) You guys hate me. It's fun. Okay. It says be patient. Number two, it says strengthen your hearts. So we're supposed to strengthen our hearts in the midst of oppression. Number three, we're not supposed to complain against one another. Because as I shared last week, what happens when trial comes, when things get hard, is that we tend to turn on each other, don't we? I told you this when it comes to husbands and wives. You have a bad day at work. You come home and you're snarky with everybody in your house. It's not their fault, but it's something that we do. So the warning is there. Don't complain against one another. Uh, The fourth piece that we learned from verses 7 through 11 is to endure 
right? We're to endure to the end. And then we get to this amazing idea that we're to let our yes be yes and our no be no. In other words, we're supposed to be a people who keep our word. If you said to that field owner in James's day that you would work, then you work. It doesn't matter if the guy next to you has been killed because he hated him. It doesn't matter if your wages are being withheld. Who is in control of vengeance and retribution? God is. How many of you like that? Be honest with me. How many of you like that God is in control of vengeance and retribution? Yeah. I like it ultimately. I don't like it in the moment. Right? I love it ultimately. I love saying one day all wrongs will be righted and Jesus will be on his throne and life will be good. But for today, (laughs) I'd like to string some people up. Right? I'd like to string them up. I'd like to maybe torture them just a little bit, right? I've been looking into classes on waterboarding just to try to figure out how to do this well, right? But the the idea here is that we need to let justice be God's, but we're not good at that. We're not good at that at all. It actually is very hard for us because we don't have the first four things that we were supposed to have, patience, the strength of heart, a a resistance to complaint towards one another, and a willingness to endure. We don't have it. Instead, we just want to push by certain things. We We want to get our end, and that's what's happening. So what about this whole idea of vows or this whole idea of oaths? What's going on? Context. Context matters inside of their culture. You see, in an ancient culture, a oath that was made claiming heaven or earth or God was supposed to to ensure that your oath was true. It ensured your oath was absolutely true. But you know who God's people should be? A people whose word speaks enough for themselves. My yes should be yes for me. My no should just be no. I shouldn't have to blaspheme the name of God. I shouldn't have to take the name of God in vain. I shouldn't have to evoke something that is beyond me. I simply need to have my yes be yes and my no be no. In the Decalogue, uh, Philo wrote this in the Decalogue in uh, uh, chapter 84. That'll be a better reference for you to understand. He said, for an oath is the calling of God to give his testimony concerning the matters which are in doubt. What would be in doubt if you're being oppressed? Whether or not you persist, whether or not you continue in it. Right, And so it says, it is, an oath is the calling of God to give his testimony concerning the matters which are in doubt, and it is a most impious thing to invoke God to be witness to a lie. Okay? So why are you not supposed to say, I swear to God? Because when you fall short, what you've done is you've invoked God to be witness to your lie. It's already problem enough that we don't always tell the truth. It's already problem enough, church, that we're not people of our word. And I'm not condemning you for this because I have a lot of work to do in this area. 
I want to be a man of my word, and I want to be a man of my word in every single area of my life. The challenge is I fall short, but the grace is God has called us to remember we're to be a yes, yes, and a no, no people. Not a people who who take this some sort of strange literal way where we don't sign contracts, but instead that we're not a people trying to evoke God to prove we're telling the truth if we're just a bunch of liars. Mm. Right? We need to be a people who tell the truth. The Christian was to be patient. The Christian was to be strong of heart. The Christian was supposed to be united with their brothers and sisters in the midst of trial. And the Christian was supposed to endure to the absolute end, remaining a people of their word. Job remained a man of his word. That's why James uses him as a reference. Job remained a man of his word, and his family is taken from him. How many of you are ready to sign up for that? I'm not sure, guys. And yet that might be the call in our life. I don't, I'm not giving you a prophecy of doomsday. I, I have no idea what the future holds, okay? But what I will tell you is, if that was asked of you, can you say that you're a person who is going to be filled with patience, a strength of heart, not complaining against one another, and enduring to the end? If that's not who you are, we need to revisit. We need to regroup. We need to rethink. We need to be a people of our word, right? And so God's name isn't actually required for us to back up our truth if we're really image bearers. Right? You're an image bearer. You're supposed to act. You're supposed to look. You're supposed to think and talk just like the one whose image you bear. Well, that's pretty awesome. If that's the case, God doesn't lie. So what should you do? Not lie. Right? That's the answer to the question. Okay, so we've made a proof, one from context. Let's, let's take another proof here, and we'll look at some passages of Scripture that show not only does God make oaths, but so does the Apostle Paul. So it would be a really strange contradiction if that's what the Bible was actually getting at. So Psalm 110 says this. I think it's verse 4 that they'll put up on the screen. Sometime. Abracadabra. They didn't fall asleep, Mark. But that was your word, not mine. So we're going to go back to Psalm 110, verse 4. What? It's absolutely there, but I'm a goofball. Okay, so maybe I didn't write the reference right. That would be my fault, which is very possible. Okay, God makes oaths himself. The Lord has sworn and it will not change uh, and will not change his mind. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Is it up there? Romans 8.1. Please forgive me. You know what's really amazing is that for all the times I have thrown people under the bus, she didn't throw me under the bus. The Lord has sworn. (laughs) I swear I put it in there. Anyway, okay. (laughs) The Lord has sworn and it will not change his and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
Psalm 110, verse 4, okay? This is God's uh, declaration of an oath. Look at what Hebrews 3.11 says. Hopefully I got these references right. As I swore in my wrath, this is God, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, so is God making oaths here? Is he swearing things, the thing that we're not supposed to do? Absolutely he is. Now look at what Hebrews 6 says. I'm crossing my fingers every time. Anyway, for men swear by one greater than themselves. You know that piece of context that I just shared with you from Philo, right, that said people invoke the name of God so it proves that. Listen, it's not just somebody that told us that from ancient history. It's actually the Bible, right? For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation, right? So they're going, I swear by God. I swear by heaven. I swear by earth. I swear by Jerusalem, the great city of the king, or the city of the great king. No, 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 don't do that. Just be a person of your word, okay? Just be a person of your word. Um, so they, the oath is given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In legal matters, back in the day, if somebody said, I swear by God, it was done. Because you didn't use God's name the way we use God's name. It wasn't so flippant. It wasn't thrown around at every movie where you see all these references to God's name. It didn't work that way. So when somebody pulled out this name, there was weight behind it. Okay, And so it was an end of a matter. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So God interposes with an oath. What does he say? So that by two unchanging things, the two unchanging things are the oath of God and the promise of God. God's promises are yes and amen. They do not return void, neither does any other, other word that he speaks. And his oath is sure. His oath is sure, right? His yes is yes, church. In which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. You see, God himself is making oaths. God himself is swearing things, but it is not to be understood the way we understand things. This is not about you uh, getting into contracts. This is simply about you being a person of your word, and you need to be a person of your word. Why is this important? I'm going to keep going here for a little bit, but why is this important? It's important because the world looks at the Bible and reads the words on the page, okay? And they read it without context, they read it without information, and then when you do the very thing it says not to do, they go, gotcha, you guys are all hypocrites, you're all fools. But if you're taught how to think, you're able to say, would you care to be educated? <laughs> would you care to learn a thing here? Would you care to understand what the Bible is actually saying? That's why you need to understand or we need to learn how to think and not just what to think. Hebrews 6.13 uh, gives another example. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. You got to remember, this is one of these first promises that all of a sudden Abraham, we all ask the question, why would Abraham leave his home? 
Why would he do this? I mean, maybe just hearing the voices of bad food the night before. Why would he do this? And God is speaking, and he doesn't just swear. He says, I swear by myself. There's something big about what's happening here. It wasn't just a small little, hey, you want to hang out with me in the wilderness, right? There's something bigger going on here. Then another passage uh, in Hebrews 7. For they indeed became priests without an oath. This is the old priesthood. But he, with an oath, Jesus, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Uh, Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, a priest that never ends, right? Let's look at the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a fascinating verse, and there's a lot of insight that I think are worth noting. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Paul is speaking of, um, Paul is speaking of a, a particular promise that he had made to the church. But anyway, vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I propose, do I propose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? What is Paul asking there? It's like, am I a hypocrite? Do I say yes and actually mean no? Do I mean both so I can just do whatever I want? He corrects it. He says, but as God is faithful, that's a, that's a similar language, by the way, as I swear by God, right? As God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. He goes on. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me, and Sylvanius and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him, another evidence that God makes oaths, the very gospel is an oath of God. Did you notice it? See, the very thing that Paul is preaching is the oath that God has given to the people. And that oath is that he will save you if you will trust him. And so Paul says, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, is that yes and no? No. It's yes. It is yes, it is yes, it is yes. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Even the promises can be understood as oaths that God has made to his people. Therefore also, through him is our amen. You know what amen often is translated to be? Let it be. Let it be. That's an oath in and of itself. Let it be. Right? You're, you're declaring something. Wow, it's fascinating. To the glory of God through us. And I believe Corinthians goes on. It says, now he who established us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. <laughs> that's, that's an oath too. Or that is the uh, deposit of a promise, an oath that comes. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. So Paul again appeals to God. Is Paul violating what James says? Good question. It's a question that people wrestle with. question that people are, are challenged by. But what Paul is actually doing is being a man of his word. Everything I said to you, I'm doing. And what James is instructing us to be and do, even in the midst of oppression, is to be a people of our word. Amen? See, see church, there is something about this. Because there, there's something very weighty about this. Because I want to recap it. 
And then I'm just going to sum up, and we're going to we're going to do communion, and we're going to and we're going to worship as we uh, as we part ways today. But remember this. In the context of verses 1 through 12, here's what James has said. Number one, in the midst of persecution, be patient. Sounds like a high order, doesn't it? It's a fruit of the Spirit, patience. Number two, strengthen your hearts. Why? Because you want to be strong. You do not want to be weak, okay? Number three, don't complain against one another. These all sound like high order things, don't they? I think... How many of you would say, I would live by this code of ethics? Be patient, strengthen your hearts, don't complain against one another and endure. How many of you would live, against, live according to that code of ethics? And then all of a sudden, James says, but above all. What? Above, above patience, James? Above strengthening your hearts? Above not complaining about one another? Above enduring? Above enduring, you just don't want me to swear? You want me to be a man of my word? Yeah, yeah, because listen, if we're not people of our words, if we're not a people of our word, and you tell somebody, don't worry, I love you, what are they going to think? Exactly. They're going to think, huh, right? Hear me out, church. If you are not a person of your word and you say, I love you, what are people going to think? I have no idea if you're telling me the truth. If you're not a person of your word and you say, don't worry, I'll be patient with you, what are people going to think? Until I make you mad. (laughs) And then you're going to lose your patience. If we are not a people of our word, what does it matter if we say to everybody, you know how people will know the church by our great love for one another? We talk all kinds of stupid games, church. But since we're not people of our word, all of that talk falls short constantly. So why above all? Why above all be a man or a woman of your word? Because if you're not that, everything else doesn't matter. If you're not that, your faith isn't genuine either. I trust you, Jesus. You know what's the difference in Jesus and everybody else in this room? He actually knows you're full of it, right? He does. He sees your heart. He knows it. So James, in this context, says something very powerful. He doesn't make a possible interpretation that you shouldn't sign a contract in your life. If you have been taught that or if you know somebody like that, just hooey hooey, right? Instead, what he is saying is that you and I need to be a people of our word. Everything we do needs to be yes, and it needs to be no, and we need to stick to it. This is going to require a lot of repentance, I think, for most of us, because we commit to a lot of things, and then we just don't follow through. We say yes, we let it fall short, and then people are upset, people are hurt, people are broken, and you know what they tend to not do later? Trust you. Trust you. We need to be a people who people can count on. Amen? The church needs to be a people that each other can count on. If we're going to say that we're safe with each other, we need to be safe for each other. If we're going to say we love each other, we need to love each other. If we're going to be a people of our word, all of those things will take care of themselves. Amen? So, again, the, the principle here is teaching you how to think and learning how to think myself. Um, This is a slow process. 
Um, I'm really grateful that somebody taught me how to process through mathematics. I'm grateful for it now. Um, in the moment, it was like, when are we ever going to use this? How many of you teenagers think that? When are we ever going to? Thank you. Okay. Well, let me, let me just speak to you just for a second. Um, you won't use it, but, um, <laughs> but, but biblical truth you will use. Biblical truth you will use. Sometimes you may not even realize it's biblical truth because you're just pulling something grandma said to you, whatever it is, right? But this is a truth that you need to think through, you need to keep with you all the days of your life. Trust me, trust me, trust me. If you do, when you need to recall it, it'll happen quicker. But if you don't learn how to think now, when you're demanded to think properly, it's either going to take you way too long and the situation's going to pass you by, or you're not going to know how to think properly and you're going to feel like you've lost and it's hopeless and you just give up, right? So why we need to train, why all of us need to train in how to think, not what to think, is so that when somebody comes along and says, I don't think Jesus rose from the dead, we can go, okay, do tell, right? But we're not taken away by that. We're not caught off guard by that. When we, say, when we hear somebody say something that sounds just obscure according to the Bible, we don't go, well, to each his own, that's your truth, I have my truth. You know that that's nonsense, right? <laughs> there is truth, and then there's all of our opinions. And so what we need to do is meet our opinions up with whatever God says. We need to be gracious when we don't understand. That's fine. But the reason why we need to learn how to think instead of what to think is so that we're equipped. You know, the church is not going to need... Um, the church will not need, when we grow up into unity and we're in love and we're all these things that God tells us that we're going to be, we don't need uh, a shepherd like me. We need Jesus alone, right? We don't need a shepherd like me fending off all the wolves. Why? Because you're smart enough to know that's a wolf, <laughs> right? You're like, I'm going to run now because Jesus said so, <laughs> right? You're going to know that and you're going to do what he says. Guess what, guys? I, I have you for a, as a captive audience for an hour and a half on a good day, hour and 45 minutes to hour and two hours on my normal days, <laughs> right? I have you as a captive audience. This is a small, 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 small fraction of your week. The reason why you need to know how to think, and this is not in any way a shot, the reason why you need to know how to think is because you face the dilemmas that you face. You face the errors that are going on in life. You're the one facing the enemy. You're not, I'm not sitting there. No teacher is sitting there. Your grandma's not sitting there. You're the one facing it. So if you learn how to think, you'll look at it and go, that's dumb. <laughs> I'm walking away. I'm good, right? So this is really important, and we're going to keep moving forward in this. Uh, fortunate for us, we really do have a, a group of people in our church that deeply love to learn and love to show people how to learn. So I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about what everybody brings to the table. Um, I'm excited about what we all get to grow and learn together because when every joint is supplying what it supplies and every piece is doing its part, we will reach unity, we'll reach maturity, we'll do the things God wants us to do. Amen.